Good morning. It is a great day to be with God's people. When God's people gather together, the Lord is there, and it is the house of the Lord. So we celebrate today because God's people are together, and together we are the building blocks of the temple of the Lord. We are the house of the Lord. I'm so thankful to be able to move along again in 2 Peter today. We're going to be in 2 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Uh, really, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, it'll be a two-part sermon. This week will sort of be the setup uh, for next week. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, and the next two weeks we're going to look at the true word of God. Would you pray with me before we open that word? Father God, we come to you, Lord, today. We come to you humbled. We come to you expectantly, Lord. We pray that you would do something mighty in us and through us. That your word would be as real and as alive as the day that you spoke it to the hearts of the disciples. That your word would be true and alive as it was the day that you proclaimed it on this earth. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of Peter, of James, of John, of Paul. We thank you for the testimony of the gospel writers. We thank you for the testimony of the early saints, of the churches throughout history who have not only solidified but who have confirmed your word time and time again, over and over, since your appearing. Lord, we pray most importantly for our lives that they would be a living testimony, that our lives would confirm the truth of your word by our sanctification, that our sanctification would confirm the understanding that you will come again and that we're living in a manner and in a way and with an ideal that that day is imminent. Lord, we praise you for your love for us, for your mercy, for your kindness and your endurance. We remember verses like 2 Peter 3 that say, you're not slack concerning your slackness, but Lord, we know that one day you will come and you will judge the quick and the dead. Lord, help us to live a life trusting in Jesus and following his work so that on that day you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We praise you, we love you, we give you today, we give you every day. We hope that our lives are an honorable offering, a sweet-smelling aroma to you. It's in the mighty and matchless, the one true God, the God-man Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week, Tony did an excellent job, I think, of rightly dividing the word of God. He showed us three ways that Peter was reminding his audience, the churches at Asia, Asia Minor, of the virtues of a godly nature and even why he was doing that, why he was reminding Peter knows that his exodus or his death is imminent. That's the word that Peter used for exodus, for death. He used exodus. Peter was saying that I am leaving this place for a better place. I am leaving this place for a new and greater work. He knows that his death is imminent. So he wanted to remind those 
hearers, to exhort them, to pull them alongside him, those hearers at the church of Asia Minor, to continue along in their calling. He did this by reminding them of the work that Christ has done. We have his grace. We have the grace of Christ. It has been given to us, grace upon grace. We have his power. And through his grace, that is the undeserved gifts that he gives us, the gift of salvation, but also the gift of sanctification, through his power, we can live in a virtuous way. Peter is reminding the early audience of the work that Christ has done. Tony showed us how Peter was reminding the believers to do the work of Christ. This was Peter's eulogy. He was encouraging them to, to wake from their sleep. Peter said uh, last week in 12 to 15, wake from your drowsiness. Get up and do the work of Christ. And then Tony pointed out that he reminded us to, Peter reminded them to recall the qualities of faithfulness. Peter said he will make every effort before his exodus to remind them of those virtuous qualities that he that we studied in the first part of 2 Peter chapter 1. Remember the illustration Tony used? It was very fitting and, and it impacted me, and so I want to remind you. Um, Tony reminded us of how we learn in a classroom setting. Often we learn things in school or in college or whatever, and we, remember, we learn them, we retain them for a little while, and then we forget them. I think the reason is, is because there's two reasons, and I think Tony pointed this out, and one reason is because um, we are learning to learn, just to learn. Another reason is because we don't continue to learn. We don't continue to reinforce those ideas. And if I said two, I meant three. Another is we don't put those in practice. And so the difference between learning, okay, this is not a classroom setting. The difference between learning as a college student, as a Christian, is that we're not learning just so that we can be factual people, just so that we can have knowledge. We're not learning uh, as if there is an expiration date on uh, what we just learned. We learn to keep learning. And Peter says, I'm going to make every effort before my exodus to keep reminding you. The reason you don't remember your college stuff, but you remember the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. The reason you don't remember your college stuff, but you remember John 3.16, is because you learn and relearn and relearn and relearn. But also, it's because you put it into practice. Peter says, I'm going to do everything, I'm going to make every effort that I have before I leave to remind you but also, you've got to remember that part of this knowledge is virtuous living. Part of retaining this knowledge is, is virtuous living, putting what you know in practice. The last few weeks, we saw Peter addressing the false teachers, and I think Tony's sermon ended with that. The, the Peter addressing the false teachers who believed that a virtuous life was impossible. Peter knew that if in the first century church... If less than 30 years after Jesus left the earth, that false teachers had, had weaseled their way into the church <laughs> saying that you don't have to live virtuous lives. He knew that every reader from 66 or whatever AD all the way to the return of Christ would deal with the fact that people were going to try to get people off of the narrow way. People were going to try to get Christians off of the narrow way. And so Peter is saying, make every effort. 
make every effort to follow the narrow way, to live, virtuous, to live a virtuous life. He says it's possible in the first part of chapter 1, 12 through 15, but also, uh, our first chapter, Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, but in 12 through 15, he says it's likely, it's probable that you will live that virtuous life. So Peter was addressing those false teachers who say it's improbable. It's improbable. It's not going to happen. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's not what God, it must not be what God wants because it can't be done. Peter's reminding the early disciples that it's exactly what God wants, and he wants you to struggle. He wants you to have difficult time. He wants you to have a difficult time following him because stuff that is attained easy is often very rarely appreciated. Stuff that is gained difficult in a difficult manner is more appreciated. It's more understood. We have to suffer through good works in order to uh, relate with Christ. And then in 2 Peter 1, 16-21, he's addressing a different false teacher. He's addressing the false teacher who in 2 Peter 3 says, Jesus will not return. The false teachers in Second Peter, this is the first century church, 30 years after Jesus. And they've already deviated so far from the truth that Peter is having to address things that you and I would be like, this is nonsense. Jesus is absolutely going to return. But in Second Peter chapter 3, we see these false teachers say, life has gone on before Jesus. Life went on when Jesus was here. And life will go on as normal without Jesus. So there is no return. It's just you live, you live for him, and then there's this sort of spiritual, uh, there's this sort of spiritual life in the future, but not eternal life, not real life. And that's just not what the disciples said. It's not what Peter said. So let's look at Peter's testimony today. Let's look at the word that was spoken, and let's see how he begins this refutation of these false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at 2 Peter 1, 16. We'll read 16 through 18 today. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. I think it would be best to give you the background behind what Peter is discussing before we sort of discuss the theological implications of what he's discussing. In 2 Peter 1, 16-21, Peter is referencing the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the Mount of Transfiguration is a very prominent a historical account from the Bible, but it's not one that I really remember discussing too much on Sunday mornings to this point, and it may be one that we you have overlooked in the past, but the Mount of Transfiguration is found in Matthew 17, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. This was a real historical event that happened on a high mountain where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up there and something very special and unique happened. 
on the mount, the three disciples saw Moses, Elijah, and of course they were with Jesus, but they saw Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And Jesus was shining brightly like the brightest sun, and his clothes were a brilliant white. He was glowing. Tony referenced this last week, but Peter, not really knowing what to do, said, let's set up three tents. Let's set up three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Now, don't miss this. What Peter was doing, Peter, I I feel like Peter uh, because I'm constantly like hitting the mark and then constantly missing the mark so much that like my whole life I've sort of felt like Peter. And Peter is like, he hits the mark and then he misses the mark. He says, let's set up three tabernacles. What he's doing is saying, let's set up three equal standings for Moses, for Elijah, and Jesus. Let's set up three places for you to dwell. And the interesting thing is, a a cloud comes down onto the mountain, a great voice comes out, and the voice says, this is my son. Listen to him. Uh, Peter records it as, this is my son in whom I am pleased. And then the disciples, the three disciples are so scared, they fall to the ground when they see, when when this cloud approaches, it's the glory of the Lord, it's the Father who has come down. They're so scared, they put their faces to the ground, they kneel to the ground, and then the cloud disappears, and when they look up, it's only Jesus. Now, Peter wanted to set up an equal standing for Moses and Elijah and for Jesus. And when the Lord spoke and they looked up, only Jesus stood on the mount. Moses no longer tabernacles with his people. Elijah no longer tabernacles with his people. But God has come so that Christ may tabernacle forever with his people. Only Jesus stood now, this is an over. This is an the problem. One of the maybe the most overlooked, prominent accounts of an historical event in the Bible. Um, but there is so much to be said about this story. The first thing you need to know, and it's not up here, but it's but. Uh, and if you want this, if you want to write this down for your own study, I'll give it to you later. But I'm not. I'm not going to slow down right now. <laughs> Number one, this is a historical event. This is something that actually happened to Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. This is not a vision, and it's not a dream. As a matter of fact, Luke uh, reports, or Mark maybe, reports that that the disciples were sleepy. They were asleep. And it says, and after they had awakened, they, they woke up. They woke up, and they saw this account. They took hold of what was happening. This is a historical event. Another thing you need to see from this, this account purposefully gives us a connection to Moses. There is a purposeful reason that this this account is connected to Moses. Besides Moses being there, um, Moses went on a high mountain. He went on Mount Sinai. This account happened on a high mountain. Most people are not sure. It doesn't mention. Uh, It may be Mount Horeb. It may be another one, but it doesn't matter. They went on a high mountain. Um, There was six days of preparation that led up to Moses going up on Mount Sinai. There were six days of preparation. This account happened on the seventh day. Luke's account says, and about the eighth day. So about means almost, right? So this account happened on the seventh day. 
um, God speaks from the mountain on the seventh day. Moses' face shines, and Jesus' face shines. It's interesting here because Moses, when he met God, his face was glowing. And he veiled his face. And until I read about this account, I, I didn't understand why. I missed it. Moses veiled his face because the, uh, the glory of God was shining on his face. And I was like, why would you want to hide that? He wasn't hiding the glory of the Lord on his face. He was hiding that the glory faded. Moses, all of the law and all the prophets, they were fading. They were only a temporary sign, a temporary truth of what was to come. Now, they didn't pass away. The, Jesus said uh, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Not a, a jot or a tittle will pass away. But Moses hid his face because over time the glory fade. it was a, faded. It was a representation of the fact that Moses' ministry was temporal. And here on this mount, we see Jesus shining. We see the glory of God coming on Jesus in a glory that did not fade. A glory that kept on going. A glory that saw him at the cross. A glory that culminated uh, on this earth in a resurrection. And a glory that will one day be seen in his second coming. When another uh, close illustration to Moses or close connection to Moses is when the people saw the glory of the Lord on Moses, they feared when people saw the glory of the, when the disciples saw the glory of the Lord on Jesus, they, they feared. So there was a lot of connection. Moses tells people to look forward to a prophet, and when the prophet comes, you should listen to him. What did God say about Jesus? He said, this is my son. Listen to him. The Lord used this parallel to show that Moses was the old way to follow. Moses represented the law, Elijah represented the prophets, and Jesus represented the culmination and the fulfillment of both of those things. That's why when on that mount, when the Lord had ascended back into heaven, when the cloud was gone, only Jesus was left. He is and was the new way. He was a fulfillment that the old way in the Mo, in the Mosaic sense and in the sense of Elijah had passed away. So this account is purposefully gives us a connection to Moses because Moses was the initiator of the law and Jesus was the fulfiller of the law. The account reveals the glory of Jesus and God's approval. Matthew 16, 13 through 16, uh, Peter is confirmed in what he said in Matthew 16. Look at that, well, or just listen if you want to. Matthew 16... Verses 13 through 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This truth of Matthew... Uh, of Peter's account in Matthew 16, 13 through 16, was confirmed at the Mount of Transfiguration. This Mount of Transfiguration account was necessary for the disciples because they did not understand the connection with Jesus and the cross. They did not understand that Jesus must suffer in order for the gospel to be fulfilled. This is another account that gave them, that led them along that path. 
What did Peter, uh, again, we, we see this like, let us make three tents. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What did he say right after that in Matthew 16, 21? Jesus is saying, I must go. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, no, that's not how, that's not, we, we won't let it happen. And then right after Jesus, right after Peter proclaims the truth about Jesus, he said, Jesus said, get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, enemy. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. The disciples needed the Mount of Transfiguration to be able to make it to the end. And although while we see people like Peter falter, what we see is all of these events and all of these truths that show the glory of God will be what they rely on when Jesus is gone. <clears throat> Another thing the Mount of Transfiguration does, Peter tells us that the Mount of Transfiguration also reveals the truth of a future coming and glory of Jesus. How do we know this? I think there's two ways. First, the Lord, when he descended in the cloud, said, this is my son, listen to him, listen to him. Well, what did Jesus say about himself? John 14 says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus, in his own words, said, he is leaving. But he's leaving to go and prepare a place for those who belong to him. But if he goes away and prepares a place, he will return so that those who belong to him may be with him. So we see one reason. We know the Mount of Transfiguration is a look ahead to the return of Jesus because Peter says, but the Lord says, listen to him. And if we listen to him, he says, he will come again. So the Mount of Transfiguration is to inform the disciples of the glory of Christ through Christ, the deity of Christ, the glory of God through Christ, excuse me, the deity of Christ, the purpose of the work of Christ, and the finished work of Christ. Peter in 2 Peter 1 specifically mentions the Mount to refute what the false teachers had been saying about, <coughs> had been saying at the churches in Asia Minor. These churches had been denying the return of Christ. In 2 Peter 3, we see they were saying that the world had uh, gone on before Christ. It had gone on while Christ was here, and it will go on without Christ. They were scoffing. They were scoffers at the people of Christ because Christ had not returned to that point. Just imagine what it must have felt like before having the canonized, written, verified, confirmed word of God what it must have been like to tell the truth about Christ's return. Imagine what it must have been like to try to tell this message without having thousands of thousands of years of church history to prove the work and word of Christ. It must have been difficult because 30-something years after Jesus died, people were already in the church trying to refute the fact that Christ would return. They were scoffing at the people. 
So Peter draws back to the Mount of Transfiguration to point us to the reliability of the return of Jesus. I want to give you three things to look at this week. When we think about the reliability of the word of God, the true word of God, when we think about what is trustworthy, the first truth Peter mentions is this. Peter's message came from God. Peter's message was trustworthy. Peter's message was worthy of obeying, listening to, understanding, and obeying because his message came from God. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We'll spend more time on this next week, so I won't belabor the point too much, but Peter is saying that the words he is teaching them, the words he was taught and he is now teaching them come directly from God. About to sneeze. You know, if my, my family sneezes are real weird, so hopefully I can get past that. All right, Peter is saying <coughs> the message that he is speaking, that the disciples are speaking, came directly from Jesus. It was not their own words, but they were, wit- they were not their own words, but they were witnesses to the glory of Christ. And the Father confirmed to the disciples that Jesus is worthy of listening to. Jesus is the word, and Peter is vouching for the reliability of the word. The Lord came down in a cloud, and he said, this is my son. Listen to him. Friends, I want to tell you, the reliability, (coughs) the words of Jesus are reliable because he's the son of God. So when we see the words of Jesus in the Bible, we know that they're reliable because he is God, and he is the son of God. Can I tell you something, though? The words of Peter... A holy man who is inspired by the Holy Spirit are just as reliable as the words that Jesus said because it was the Spirit of God who spoke those words into Peter. Not only through eyewitness accounts, the Lord directly, but also the Spirit of God on the heart of Peter to write down the Word of God so that it may be secured and confirmed forever. So it may be difficult to understand this, but the red letters in the Bible bear no more significance than the black letters if you have a red letter edition. When you see the red letters, you say, this is God speaking. When you see the black letters, you say what? This is God speaking. The word is true. So the testimony of Peter, because it came from the Lord, is true and trustworthy. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, "Look, listen, we didn't, we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't follow clev- cleverly devised myths. There were two, there's two words here. The word really is translated myth, but there's two ideas here. One is a myth and one is a fable. If you don't know the difference, I'll explain it really quickly. A myth is a, uh, is a non-historical, non-factual thing that has a uh, sort of like a prominent, relevant, or important meaning. A fable is a non-historical, non-relative, non-factual story that has no important, relevant, um, pertinent meaning. And what the false teachers in 2 Peter are accusing the disciples of is coming up with fables. They were saying that the return of Jesus is a fable. 
that not only is it not true, but it has no pertinence to your life and to your way in godliness. And Peter says, listen, we're not making up fables. We're not making up fables. <clears throat> but we saw his power and coming. We saw the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. So when we ask the question, who wrote the Bible? We know it was holy men who bore witness personally, but also who were taught by the Holy Spirit. Because of that, these words are approved by God, and they are trustworthy. Friends, you need to understand as we think about the reliability of the word of God, as we think about the reliability of the Bible, what we need to understand is that the men who wrote the Bible were not following cleverly devised fables. They gained nothing from making up stories, from losing all of their money, all of their status in the world by dying martyrs' deaths, almost all of them. They gained nothing if the gospel is not true. I want to tell you, friends, they were not dumb. If they had wanted to start a cult, if Jesus was a revolutionary, if that was all he was, if Jesus was a, a man that just wanted to, wanted to be a political dissident or he wanted to change the world politically, he wanted to come and conquer uh, as an anarchist, if Jesus were any of those things, I can promise you, you can see how that you can see how those people, those type of people function in our society today. He would have done a lot more in the way of promoting himself, in the way of making himself known, in the way of getting along with government figures. They didn't follow fables like the false teachers claimed that they were doing. But they witnessed the power and the coming of Jesus. Peter, James, and John, this is specifically the Mount of Transfiguration, what they're talking about. As a matter of fact, to that point, to the point of the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of Jesus had been veiled. Like, Jesus was doing prominent things. He was healing people. He was speaking in a way that uh, someone, he had no, no formal training, but he was speaking in a way that he had, like he had. He was doing some spectacular things. But so did Elijah, and so did Elisha, and so did the prophets, so did John the Baptist in certain ways. So, like, Jesus had not really been distinguished from those who had gone before him at that point. The Mount of Transfiguration was God's way of dropping the glory and proving the presence of God for the people of God. Peter said, we saw his glory. That's the face shining and his clothes brilliant white. And his presence, that is, that God is among us. God is dwelling with us. They witnessed his majesty, Peter said. The Mount of Transfiguration was a historical event. The majesty of Jesus refers to his deity. Just like uh, the baptism of Jesus, which can be a little confusing because Peter records that as saying the same thing. The, Lord came down like a dove, and he said, this is my son, and I'm well pleased. Um, just like that was a confirmation of the deity of the son, 
so too is this Mount of Transfiguration, a confirmation of the deity of God's Son. This is my Son. Listen to Him. Now, hearing that for us, it might not have the same significance as it would have for someone who studied prophecy, for someone who studied the revelation of the Messiah. But Peter, James, and John knew. Peter, James, and John knew as at least faithful adherents to the Jewish faith, they knew that what God was saying in that cloud was, this is the one. They knew that when Moses and Elijah disappeared, they knew that God was saying, this is the one that the prophecies foretold of. So Peter's message came from God. It's trustworthy and reliable because it came as a direct testimony from God. Peter's message was about the glory and presence of Jesus. Look at verse 17. For when we received honor, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter's message was about the glory and the presence of God. The Mount of Transfiguration was a theophany. <clears throat> a theophany is when God appears to man. There are multiple instances when the Lord came down. Christophany is when we think it's Jesus before the actual God-man appeared on earth. Theophany is when we think it's the Father. And this is a theophany. The Father appears at the Mount of Transfiguration. He does two things, which I've already mentioned, but I'll mention again. He confirms the deity of Jesus. He is God. Then he speaks to his honor and glory. Glory here refers to his face. It refers to his shining. It refers to the words that God said about Jesus. The glory and honor is confirmed. Emmanuel has come. He has received the honor and glory of God by the confirmation that he is the son of God. But also, the truth is that the glory and honor will come again. Emmanuel has come, but Emmanuel will come again. And in that day, we will see the full honor and glory of God. First, uh, John verse 1, 14, when speaking of the transfiguration, says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. The Mount of Transfiguration was confirmation that God has tabernacled with his people. And not only that, but he is the only one that remained. He will tabernacle. <clears throat> right now, the Son of God has made his dwelling place our heart. And he still tabernacles with all of those who belong to him. The Mount of Transfiguration is connected to the return of Christ because in all three Gospels preceding the Mount of Transfiguration account, the kingdom of God is mentioned and the kingdom of God is introduced. We know that the culmination of the kingdom of God is ultimately when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom forever. So when Peter, James, and John came down from the mountain, they believed these things. And this is what you need to take from them. This is, you know, in addition to all that we've said, this is what you need to take from them. Peter, James, and John believed that God the Father had spoken to them. They believed that definitively. They believed that he had confirmed 
his coming, the, the God's coming to the earth through Jesus Christ. They believed that, that God had spoken to them, that it confirmed that Jesus Christ was the God-man who had come to earth. So they had confirmed that Jesus was God. And they had confirmed that whatever Jesus said was true and worthy of all attention. Whatever Jesus said was true and worthy of all attention. Now we look at this and we think, okay, this is what Peter said. It is what Peter said if you don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. It is what Peter said if you don't believe in the infallibility, in the inerrancy of the Bible. But if you believe in the inspiration of the Bible, that it's Holy Spirit inspired to holy men, if you believe that eyewitness testimony can be trusted if it is deemed trustworthy, then you understand that what Peter is saying is the very word of God. And I want to kind of end by saying this. Peter is a reputable witness. Peter is a reputable witness. Not just because, not just because we see his words that are finalized and canonized in our Bible, but he's a reputable witness for a few things. I looked up, um, I looked up over a couple of cross sources what makes a reputable witness. And these, these are the things that were mentioned sort of there were a lot of little extra things, but these were the things that were mentioned in multiple sources. Number one is confidence. Confidence. Peter says, we did not come to you telling you a fable. Peter says in verses 12 through 15, I'm going to make all diligence to make sure that you know that the words that I have spoken to you about virtuous living, that you follow. You know, what, you know what else shows Peter's confidence? The fact that he staked his life on it. Confidence. Consistency. Friends, I want you to know, and I'm not going to give a full apologetic of the inerrancy, infallibility, and the trustworthiness of the Bible, but I want you to know that the words spoken by the disciples were consistent amongst themselves amongst what everybody else was speaking, and they were also consistent with the historical books that were already in the Bible, the law, the prophets. Nothing that the disciples said detracted from what Moses had said. Nothing that the disciples said detracted from what was written about David or, or what was said from Jeremiah or Isaiah. As a matter of fact, the more manuscripts that have been found throughout history, the more that our canonized Bible has been confirmed. Now, I'm not going to get into textual criticism. There are um, some differences in different translations. There are some differences in different copies of manuscripts. But I want you to be confirmed in this, that no difference ever found has been foundational. It's like someone wrote something twice. Someone scribed something twice. Or maybe someone used this idea of a definition of a word because we know that Greek words had multiple meanings. But no difference, no textual critique has ever been found to foundationally change the message of the gospel. As a matter of fact, uh, the proof of the gospel is more proof provable and relevant than 
the, ev- the historical evidence that George Washington existed. As a matter of fact, before you die, there will not be, there cannot be, and will not be enough evidence that you exist while you're still alive. Okay? Like someone in Texas or someone in California can't have enough evidence to know that you exist in Mississippi. Okay? Even if they hear you on the phone or see you on a video, they don't have enough evidence. They don't have as much mounted evidence as there was that Jesus, as we have, that Jesus existed, is alive, that his word is conformed to this singular idea, thought, and story. There is a consistency amongst Peter and Paul. There is a consistency amongst James and John. Peter is a reputable eyewitness. Another Another truth that I, that I saw about a reputable witness was attention to detail. Attention to detail. Along with that consistency comes with an understanding that is uh, corroborated throughout all of the New Testament. Again, Peter says, um, Peter says, Luke says on about the ninth day, on about the eighth day. Okay? He doesn't say after six days, right? He doesn't say on the seventh day. But they all three mean the same thing. Peter says, this is my son whom I am well pleased. The gospel accounts say, this is my son. Listen to him. Well, you might say, well, Peter is is deviating from, this is inconsistent. Well, maybe think of it this way. Matthew wasn't there. Mark wasn't there. Luke wasn't there. Who was there? Peter, James, and John. So if, if I tell a story to Blake, Blake is going to tell you, and he's going to, te- he's going to retell it to you in his own words, and it's going to be very similar. But if I tell of my experience, it's going to be, instead of looking at someone else's experience, instead of having specific notes, I'm just going to tell you how I remember it. And if you have anybody in your relationship like me who is more a stickler for details as opposed to my wife who is a less of a stickler for details, you can see how two stories can have the they can be the exact same story, can be the exact same truth and come out of people's mouths completely differently. <laughs> or not completely differently, but at least a little differently. Attention to detail. Trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. I would say that the disciples were trustworthy. I would say the disciples, I would say that the testimony of Jesus is trustworthy. If anybody dies and comes back from the dead, okay, I think you should listen to their message. I think there's a pretty good thought that you should listen to their message. As a matter of fact, if extra biblical sources corroborate that, there were Roman and Jewish historians that corroborated the resurrection of Jesus. They corroborated that the early Christians believed that Jesus rose from the grave from the very beginning of Christianity. Trustworthiness. Another is the another true uh, uh, characteristic of a true eyewitness is the ability to communicate what they saw. A true eyewitness will have the ability to say the story, the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. The ability to say it in a way that's understandable, that's clear. And another is dedication to their story. You know how I know know Peter was dedicated to his story? 
You know how I know the early church was dedicated to the stories, the narratives, the accounts of Peter? Because when Peter died, as church history says, upside down on a cross, the stories remained. The accounts remained. Now, if I were to stand up before you next week and I were to say, I am a prophet of Jesus, and he is telling me that we should all buy property on the west side of DeSoto County and start a commune, okay? Now, I might say the last part, but I won't say it as a prophet of Jesus. I'll just say it as somebody who's practical, okay? Someone who's practical. But if I say that, okay, and I say this is the only way to follow God, and only the people who live on our property will be followers of Jesus. If I say that, and the next week I die, or a couple of years later I die, First of all, you're probably not going to believe me anyway, but maybe I'm convincing. Maybe I'm convincing. But the next week I die, or a couple months later I die, or a couple years later I die, how long will that story last? How long will that truth last? See, when Peter, was, when Peter died a martyr's death, if what Peter had said had been this great fabricated lie that the apostles were carrying on, you would think that by the time they got to John, who didn't die a martyr's death, but died persecuted, and John would have said, that's enough, it's enough, okay? It was a joke. We took it a little too far. I'm sorry. It didn't really happen. Jesus didn't die. He didn't raise, he died, but he didn't raise from the dead. It's interesting that all of the disciples stuck to the story. So much so that everyone that followed them, not everyone, but all of those who trusted in Christ from that point forward have stuck to the same story. It only takes one or two trusted eyewitnesses to convict someone of a crime or at least to accuse someone. Here we have three witnesses to this event who have been proven to be, <coughs> who have proven to, be, to have all six of the qualities that I just mentioned. And their word is going against Others who did not bear personal witness, but who were led away by an evil spirit. I think, Pete, I think it's important to notice that not only was Peter reliable enough to defeat the false prophets of that day, the naysayers of the return of Christ, but the words of Peter are just as reliable today to do the same because they are the words of God. They are just reliable enough to are just as reliable today to when it's been 2000 plus years and no Jesus we can say but this is what God says. And we stake our claim on it. We stake our life on it. They're just as reliable enough to say when someone comes and says virtuous living is impossible. It's not something you should do. They're just as reliable to we say but this is what God says. And can I affirm something in you friends? That should be the ultimate standard of every choice, every decision, every path we take. What does God say? What does God say? What does God say? Every way we choose to discipline our child, every way we choose to treat our spouse, every way we choose to interact with God's people, every way we choose to interact with the lost, every decision we make as far as what we're going to stand for, what we're going to stand against, we should look at that and we say, 
This is what God said. And we should have the same veracity, the same spirit, the same power that motivated Peter to say, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that before I die, before I exodus, you remember this. The word has not lost its power. As a matter of fact, friends, I think the word in us has increased in power because we have 2,000 plus years of history that proves that God is who he says he is. What a great advantage. I remember thinking when I was younger, boy, if I just had been like Peter, if I had just been around there when Jesus, if I had just seen Jesus with my own eyes. And yet the Bible says, They beheld the glory of the Son of God. That glory is confirmed through his death, burial, and resurrection. And also through the lives of those who have faithfully followed him. We have such a great cloud of witnesses before us. That in some ways, in some ways, we have it easier than the disciples to trust in Jesus. In some ways, the gospel is more clear than even those first century church members to the gospel that they had. Now, I believe the Spirit of God revealed the deep truths of the gospel to them. I don't think that they were lacking because we're all on a faith of equal standing. But I think just from perspective, you know, hindsight is 20-20. Pray with me today. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Your word is true. You have confirmed it not only by eyewitness testimony, not only by personally speaking it, but you have confirmed it on the hearts of everyone who belongs to you. Lord, help us to be people of your book, to trust it, to see the words of Peter, the words of Paul, the words of James, the words of John, to see them as just as prevalent and as active and as important as they were when they wrote them. As truth to live by. We praise you. We love you. We thank you for your son. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.